You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll discuss dyslexia, the brain, and reading science. One important takeaway to remember is that dyslexia is not one single thing. Let's learn more about dyslexia and reading science together. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast. This is Lori here. And today I am very excited because our guest is an associate professor at the University of Maryland in College Park which is our home state. So we are thrilled to talk with an expert here right in our backyard. Today, DJ Bulger is going to define dyslexia for us and share some brain science. So DJ, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad we're having this important conversation. I'm glad we are kicking off some dyslexia advocacy. And I'm wondering if we can start just by you sharing a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, I've been at the University of Maryland for probably close to 14, 15 years now. My background is uh, uh, as a reading scientist. So I um, was trained at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, where I uh, got my PhD from the Learning Research and Development Center, um, studying uh, with uh, people like Chuck Perfetti and Isabel Beck uh, on the science of reading or how reading uh, develops and uh, how to teach reading. Uh, but I've been, uh, I'm a neuroscientist as well. So a lot of that work has been looking at what does the brain do when we're reading and learning to read. But more importantly is what happens or what goes wrong when we fail to learn to read. And so uh, a large uh, bulk of my research and my work has been looking at reading failure and uh, this notion of dyslexia or disability is uh, a key part of that and understanding that. Uh, but also, you know, we can look at environmental effects as well as, you know, what we think are putatively uh, biological effects and, and biological basis of reading disability. Um, so I've been working uh as I said, at the University of Maryland, where I do studies using MRI and EEG, as well as classroom-based studies. So um, I have a wide range of, of research topics, um, but all generally focusing on uh, learning to read and learning in general, as well as uh, factors in, in development that uh, make that more difficult. I'm wondering if we can just start by talking about dyslexia. Let's jump in. How is it defined? And um, is there anything that, like, right up front, you want people to know about it? What feels important? So, one of the things that I've been discussing lately is uh, this idea of how we define dyslexia. And this has clearly been um, an ongoing discussion since the 1970s um, that when dyslexia was kind of initially uh, dis- I want to say discovered. It was initially diagnosed um, in terms of an inability to learn to read in the face of other uh, otherwise what would be normal expectations for learning. And as you uh, you and many of your listeners may be aware, 
that led to, well, how do we define the expectation of being able to learn to read? And that uh, went to the use of IQ testing and things like that, that were kind of the primary uh, determiner of what your propensity would be. And so that developed into what many people know as the discrepancy criterion for uh, dyslexia, which is if your um, IQ scores or your uh, general IQ or flu- um, fluid IQ or uh, different types of measurements of it are substantially discrepant from your reading ability, that that would uh, then qualify you as reading disabled or dyslexic. Um, oh, that's that, interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. Thank you. And that, and that definition has uh, obviously changed in uh, with IDEA in 2004 with a real movement to remove the discrepancy criterion and to replace it with uh, a, a, a look at factors early on and, and what we'd call the precursors or uh, that are um, often those are the things that we're looking at these screeners, these, um, these reading screeners or you know, dyslexia screeners, as people call them. I don't like calling them dyslexia screeners. I could talk about that later, but yeah, um, <laughs> but the idea that, um, we really should be looking at who's at risk based on these early profiles in kindergarten, first grade, and then to be intervening early and to look at uh, disability or those who fail to respond to intervention, thus the RTI or uh, MTSS approach, multi-tiered support system, that those who fail to respond, those are the ones who truly have uh, a, a disability or a difficulty in learning in the face of repeated attempts and, and intensive attempts to, to teach them. And when you say fail to respond or, you know, have difficulty learning in the space of attempts to teach, how does that teaching look? Or what does that teaching look like? Because I'm, you know, I'm sitting in a district here in Maryland that has readers and writers workshop and the phonics curriculum that goes with that. But we know that is completely misaligned to how they are supposed to. So I'm just picturing here that there's a lot of kids in the failure to respond category because they're not getting their, what they need in the first place. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate or kind of just react to what I just, what I just said. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think the notion of what should qualify as the intervention or, or, you know, what interventions do you use and how, and has, have the children gotten good core instruction, I think is another uh, place where we talk about, right. That uh, the first part of intervention is just strong core instruction. Mm -hmm. Um, There've been a lot of these, um, uh, I would say graphics of, you know, those children who will do fine no matter how you teach them, right? The top 30, 40%. And then those who, if you don't teach them uh, to break the code in some explicit format, right? That they are, um, they are the ones most likely to struggle. And then, you know, at the, uh, at the kind of bottom of that uh, distribution, you know, the bottom 10%, they need something that's more, intensive that that instruction needs to be uh or intervention should i say um needs to have a a higher level of intensity and we have to start looking at the factors of what is it that's holding them back why is it that they're failing and i think that's a big part i think of um both the science moving forward as well as you know how we 
uh, how we instruct teachers or how we teach teachers about how to intervene. Uh, I know everybody, you know, will criticize any kind of one size fits all. And as they should, you know, it's called an individualized education plan for those uh, identified with a disability for that reason. Um, and I, one of the things that I focus on, especially in my uh, research and my, my advocacy work is really understanding dyslexia uh, in, in a way that we get away from the notion that this is a, a single thing. Um, dyslexia is not a single thing. And I think the big core idea that I would want everybody to take away from this uh, is that dyslexia is, in some ways, I, I often refer to it as bike riding disorder or bicycle riding disorder, which some people will then kind of scoff at and say, well, what do you mean? And how is that, you know, and it sounds strange. And what I mean by that is that reading is a cultural convention. We weren't um, evolutionarily predisposed to read. Language right. might, you know, there are arguments about, you know, the biological and evolutionary basis of learning language, spoken language. But right. reading itself is a cultural invention that's only been around for, you know, roughly 6,000 years. And so, the idea that we should be able to read, you know, uh, some biological basis um, is something that's not, you know, doesn't, from a neuroscience perspective, from a biological perspective, well, we're not expected to read. So, like bike riding, you know, we've created bikes and used bikes as a, as a tool. Literacy is a tool. So, then we have to understand that what would be the issue that would be preventing us from being able to do something that so many other people can do. And so when it seems like, you know, 75, 85% of people seem to be able to read some e very easily, some with some more explicit instruction. But uh, when we start to get into, well, why is it that some just completely struggle, we have to start to look at what are those components that reading the act of reading builds on and that obviously has roots in language and phonology uh but we also can start to look at other things like syntax vocabulary and then even at a lower level a lot of my work focuses on things like attention working memory so those facets of our mental capacity that seem to um preclude us from learning in a broad range of, of areas, not just in reading. And so, what I really want people to understand is that reading disability or dyslexia really is um, a, a disability that has a multifaceted um, kind of background or, or, or source. And so, you can um, come to have this disability through multiple either genetic pathways, if you will, biological pathways, um, or environmental pathways. And so I think that it's important to understand that all of these factors can play a, a role, oftentimes uh, intertwining together, interdependently working together. That That is kind of novelty to me. I didn't ever think about it like that. I mean, I think I've thought about when we don't teach students how to read the, you know, the way that we know is true and the way that we, that research tells us that that obviously leaves a big group of children 
not being able to read and almost presenting as dyslexic readers, if that's the right way to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't think about it as an environmental factor. Is that what you're saying? Like, is that one like possible environmental factor? And one of the things we have to think about with environmental factors is that environmental factors can become biological factors. So, uh, for instance, um, we just uh, published a research study about a year ago or so looking at what changes happen in the brain between four and seven years old from effects of stress and some of that, you know, we looked at the effects of stress across the board on children and the stress reactivity. So we measure something called cortisol. That's our stress hormone. Mm-hmm. And we look at um, those who have had increased release of cortisol through that period of time and what happens in the brain uh, as it's developing. And then moreover, what's happening to behavior. And what we see is that those who undergo lots of early life stress they end up having changes in the brain in areas of prefrontal cortex. Many people will kind of understand that that's, oh yeah, that's that area that's involved in planning and and attention and working memory. And that those areas uh, seem to uh, kind of undergo a a type of development. We almost call it a rapid development or kind of they um, kind of reach peak early is the current thinking about it. Um, But that, that ends up, potentially putting a uh, kind of a cap or a stifling the, you know, the, um, the development of prefrontal cortex, which then we're, what we've shown and others have shown has an effect on working memory and attention. So you see what would look like greater attention deficit disorder or, or something along that line. So one of the things that I say is, is that even environment and issues in environment early in life can become embedded in our biology such that, you know, when they children get to school age or in that time where they're trying to learn to read, right, factors like attention, working memory may be problematic. But we also know that language is a huge factor and early language. And so there's been lots of studies about, you know, the language development and different trajectories of, of children, and that oftentimes that language trajectory starts early in infancy, toddlerhood, and if not given a certain type of input, amount of input, you know, there's a you know fairly decent amount of research to suggest that that has um, consequences further on down the line. Uh, Hollis Scarborough, who's well known for her reading rope, but she it was also her work that basically identify the primary precursors, the things that we uh, identify in those screeners. Um, It's her work that's identified, you know, what should we be screening for in kindergarten, you know, to predict, you know, reading success or failure later on. And even uh, research that she's still involved with uh, is showing that a lot of the primary predictors of success or failure in learning to read in first, second, third grade a lot of them are language, right? They're all early language. Um, yeah. So I, Can you I, say more about that? Like, what what are the factors that contribute to either success or I don't want to say failure, but yeah. or challenges? So, 
And I think one of the things that we think about is you could take a number of things from vocabulary, right? Just the number of words and the types of words and the um, variety of words. Mm. So, and, and to look at the impact that that would have. So even with something like phonological awareness, if you don't have a, a, in your mind, in your you know, mental vocabulary, words like hat, bat, fat, sat, would you start to have a rhyme, an understanding of the rhyme of at, you know? Um, and so, and that would uh, that would go on to implicate other, right, a whole range of, of things that we think about in phonological awareness from rhyming to individual phonemes. But then we could also add to that the syntax, right? The idea that, you know, what did children learn in those first four years, right? How to add plural, add this s sound to make something plural or add this t or d sound to make it past tense. And what we often don't understand is children are learning through what we call morphology, right? Those little added endings or, or prefixes, right? That they're really learning that just by plugging and playing with putting different pieces of sounds onto different uh, onto the word we're changing it in a meaningful way mm -hmm. and that uh, that's essentially the what we call the metalinguistic awareness that's that is what phonemic awareness is and people talk about morphological awareness in the educational space and so what what we are starting to really understand is that those types of factors that are acquired early in those, you know, those fundamental years in, in you know, infancy, toddlerhood, uh, pre-K years, those factors are probably, you know, the, the primary things that are building those faculties that allow us to then see words as, as things that we can uh, plug and play with. And to give you a, um, another uh, analogy that I like to use when describing the at least the word recognition process is that I say kids need to see words as Legos, right? Mm. They need to understand that, oh, if I, if I want to, I can take this little piece and I can put this little piece on top and now it's a car or I can, okay, what if I take this little piece and put these two pieces here and there, I can make it into this or that. And so it, reading as, uh, you know, especially reading in an alphabetic system, I'll, I'll you know, as we do in uh, English language, um, Right when we go to put these letters on, right, they're mapping onto these sounds, these phonemes, in a way that we're plugging and playing with them like Legos. And yeah. so, if children don't understand and see that these things are just like Legos, I mean, I think that's a, if there's anything I would have a a teacher, or a parent, or anything understand is that words are like Legos, right? Yeah. You can plug and play and put the different things on the beginning and end, and it changes them in a way. And that's why, you know. We always used to use examples like the name game, Bobby, 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 that idea of phonemic awareness is basically telling them is that, you know, these letters, when we, you know, start to put on these letters is that they're just doing the same thing in a visual format. Yeah. So, 
if there's anything that I really would in the science of reading that I'd want to get teachers to understand is just understand that concept. And that'll, that'll just drive your knowledge in a way that, that I think would fundamentally get you to think differently about the process. Yeah. I like that. That's really fun. And it's like a kind of freeing way to think about it, Mm -hmm. you know, just play with words, play with sounds, play with letters. When a lot of the detractors from things like the science of reading, you know, the, 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 the common refrain from balanced literacy or whole language has been, oh, it's kill and drill. And, you know, what I often talk about is I, I, I call that the poverty of imagination. You know, it's that, that things can be fun and it just playing with words is fun. Right. And I think that's if you can uh, do things that make that knowledge and awareness fun it's not kill and drill. It's teaching children that their language that they're using is a an amazing thing. It's 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 something that they can play with. And if you look at artists and and you know singers, songwriters, uh, poets, right? I mean, what do they do? They're playing with words. They're playing with sounds. Doctor Seuss, rap, mm-hmm. you know, rap, you know, some rap, rap. Well, no, I was going to say even rap artists are some of the. Oh, greatest... you're going to say rap artists? I was saying Raffi. I was still oh, on uh, the the pre K train. Go ahead. Yeah, no, but but even just the, the amazing grasp of of uh, of language that they have of words of rhyme scheme of sound. I, I actually, you know, I would probably say that they probably haven't. A, a greater awareness than the average person, but um, but my my point there being is that um, it doesn't have to be kill and drill, right? There's a lot of things that are exciting, engaging, culturally relevant, culturally, you know that. Um, so I think a lot of the um, aspects of this part of the science that get a bad name of being kill and drill and and those types of things, I think that there's, uh, like I said, it's a poverty of imagination, which we just have to rethink how we you know, how we, how we play with language, how we do that in our instruction and intervention. Yeah. I love that. I'm wondering about like taking this back to students who either may have dyslexia, who may present as having dyslexia, as you said, it's a lot of different pieces. It's not just one. And thank you for, for framing that for us so that we can have that important takeaway, but what happens, do you mind sharing what happens in their brain with, if, I'm trying to play with words, right? I'm a student who either is presenting as, and I, I like to say that because I think a lot of kids do kind of have the same qualities, but aren't coded um, officially. And I, I think it's important to know that there's a lot of children out there who are struggling, who may not be, you know, officially given the IEP um, or officially have that you know, diagnosis. Um, so I'm wondering either, uh, a student who presents or who has um, been, you know, coded as dyslexic, what happens in my brain as I'm trying to play with words like you just described or play with letters or play with sounds? Um, so, and as I said before, you know, you can have a kind of a multitude of different profiles of of children who come to, you know, they get to this point and they struggle. And sometimes, um, as I said, they, they can look different. Now, there are particular profiles that tend to be more dominant than others. And I also, you know, will point out that there obviously is family inheritance. Um, so, family history of, of dyslexia is a large predictor. And there are genes that are um, 
well docu- or documented to be involved in some cases, but not all. You know, and in many cases, you know, you might find you know, kind of one of the most prevalent genes um, is uh, seems to be really indicative, but it only it only counts for seventeen percent of those with dyslexia. So you know, oh, wow. many people that have it, you know, might end up having dyslexia, but it only accounts for seventeen percent of the dyslexic population. Um, so what I would say is that those with um, dyslexia, what the you know what it tends to look like in the brain uh, tends to look uh, traditionally ever since the you know 1990s, early 2000s. We, you know we've seen lots of brain images that show this area of the brain um, that is in the kind of back. It's kind of associated with our auditory, receptive, language processing. Um, that this area has been less active than um, those who are able to read. So that's been the kind of primary finding, you know, through the early 2000s. Um, but what I would say is that since then, as as I've said, is how do you um, get to that point? Is it is it that that part of the brain was just never active, or is it that certain things that are, have uh, fail to happen in development or certain things that are happening genetically are preventing those areas from developing. I think that's what um, the big question has been from okay. a, from the neuroscience and, and uh, side. What I would say is that um, a lot of the evidence shows that it's that that connections, the areas that are connected uh, to that those regions of the brain. Um, especially those in the genetic profile, Nadine Gab up in uh, Harvard uh, Medical uh, or Harvard School of Education. She's done a lot of great work looking at um, these children with a family history of dyslexia and showing that particular brain areas, uh, particular connections in the brain um, are the the wiring is faulty in in some ways and actually this goes back to uh the work of galberta and others in um the 50s 60s and 70s so this is actually rooted in work when um they would unfortunately do post-mortem they'd look at the brains of those mm. who have passed away and say oh this person was dyslexic and the, so they could start to see oh yeah this is um they had you know faulty connections between these brain areas um but it we can see it as Nadine's work shows early in development um, at, you know, three, four, five years old. But even in, even in the case of her studies, not all of those children go on to develop dyslexia. So some of those children with a family history, they do go on to develop normally. And, and those who do those, those areas tend to strengthen. And it seems like those that don't, those areas, the that connective tissue doesn't strengthen. So, is I, there any correlation between the areas that did strengthen that they were taught with structured literacy? So, we uh, <laughs> there have been lots of intervention studies that okay. have have shown that yes, in in fact, um, with intervention. Uh, many of the uh, of those areas do come back online. I think that's something that's been documented, you know, since the um, early two thousands, and and repeatedly we see over and over again um, these effects that, that you get more brain activity and uh, from these interventions. Most of them are these um, well documented uh, processes of um, phonics based approaches, uh, you know, strong 
explicit letter sound instruction. The um, connectivity, there have been a, f- a number of studies that have looked at that connectivity. And I think one of the things that we take away from that is this um, idea of that multimodal, right? We talk about um, that you have to have vision and sound working together, but also motor working together. I think that there's a lot of um, those things that these connections that are, you know, going back and forth, right? They're connecting, you know, sight with sound and and sound with meaning. And so, as well as sound with our uh, hearing with our motor processes of speaking. And so, uh, these um, different connections, uh, it's they're being strengthened because of the multimodal, you know, uh, nature of of reading it and being able to put these things together. So uh, that's why I think we see that interventions that definitely focus on, you know, having a strong uh, letter sound component with, with mo- even adding the motor, drawing the letters and those types of things. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Like it would look like the student saying the sound of the letter while they're correctly writing Dr- the letter or tracing the letter or using like multiple modalities to help them uh, get the, essentially rewire their brain and get it in their body, right? Exactly. And uh, you know, even to bring up the idea of phonemic awareness, um, one of the discussions that's been kind of carried out into the popular, uh, oh, I would say the popular press, I guess I should say social media, is this idea <laughs> of... I think that's also another way to say it. I like that. I'm going to start <laughs> saying it. The popular press. It's much fancier than saying social media. Social media. Um <laughs> And this, these discussions of how do we best do phonemic awareness and how long and um, many of us, you know, who've been in the sciences, uh, uh, the reading sciences have ha- have known that, you know, phonemic awareness has a particular trajectory, but it actually uh, really develops uh, and takes off as you start to learn the alphabetic principles. So as you start mm-hmm. to get those letters and put them together with sounds. And I, it goes back to the Lego analogy that I made, which is infants, they learn words and they, they learn phonemes early, but they're not necessarily aware of them, right? That's the difference between the kind of acquisition of language process versus the awareness of language. Mm-hmm. Uh, the awareness of these things that we can plug and play with them really comes from using something that's a different modality is that, oh, once, you know, I see that this T sound is represented by this T or this, you know, uh, this K sound is, uh, this K sound is represented by this K. And that's the first letter. And uh, those are thinking about daughter, Kylie, you know, she used to see K Bart and say, that's my store. Um, <laughs> and, and it, it's that that notion of of oh that first sound that sound is has a representation other than that auditory that really gets you to f- kind of consolidate the idea I can really play with these things yeah so uh, that's why and I, but I think that's also why particular intervention approaches for phonemic awareness like clapping and tapping and stomping are effective is because they're getting you to use a different modality to to break apart or, you know, play with, as I said, I'll use the Lego analogy to see that these things can be broken apart and put back together in different ways. And so those um, connections from as a, the visual input, the letters, the, the sound, uh, the, the motor input, whether it's tapping or, or drawing, 
those are really allowing you to have a strong representation and a strong awareness of this sound and that, well, what is that sound associated with? Well, this little squiggly line that I just drew. Mm-hmm. So I, I know we're a little over time, but I'm wondering if you could answer one more question and then we could, we could wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, when a te- when a teacher is teaching and they're, they're using structured literacy and they have a tier one curriculum. They have an intervention. Everything is aligned to science reading. Like I'm thinking best case scenario here, right? For a teacher to have the tools that they need. What would we see in a student who struggles? Like I'm just picturing, I, I'm just picturing a teacher in the classroom and hearing you say all of these incredible tactics, right? Mm -hmm. Playing with letters, playing with sounds, words, morphology, vocabulary, syntax, sentences, using a variety of modalities to teach. I have, you know, my, my tier one structured literacy curriculum. And still I have a student in my class who's really, really struggling. What, what would I see in that student who's struggling? Cause like, I know that he's struggling or she's struggling, but I, I just, I feel like that that was not taught in college to me, at least like, what would I see in it? What, is, what does it mean to have a student who struggles? And then I think the next question probably is, and what can we do about it? <laughs> um, and I think that question might be more limited depending on where you are. So um, I'm hoping that you might be able to to dive into to those two finisher questions. And I think the question of you know, what we often refer to as non-responders, those who don't respond as well to intervention or don't maybe respond as well as we hope. Um I think one of the things to look at is the accomplishments or what has the child accomplished and learned. And I think um, I, I want to break this down into two different ideas. Okay. One is the idea that um, the child is making gains personally, but when it comes to standardized testing, we don't see it. And that, in fact, uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Massachusetts, uh, I, this is where I got my kind of beginning and love of, of doing this work. I was working in a, um, a laboratory that we were doing dyslexia remediations and seeing great impacts. And one of the issues that we still would see is that oftentimes on some of the measures and things that we'd see – a child would make uh, what we'd say a three or four standard deviation gain over the course of several months. Except when you look at them on a particular standardized test, they're still in the first percentile. Mm-hmm. What happened is they went from seven standard deviations back to four standard or three standard deviations back, which is a huge gain in in kind of where they came from. But it's still when they're measured against their peers at the same age right? If they're still in the first percentile. So it doesn't look like they've made any gains. So, mm-hmm. and That's I wanna, so important to remember. That's so I, important to remember. And I want to really emphasize the fact that it's important to look at the gains that the individual child's made in their learning, not just for your checkmark books, but for them. Because the other part that I'll add here is the motivational piece. And I, you know, I had actually really come to this through the brain because originally when I was trained, I was like, oh, motivations, whatever. But then when I started really getting into the brain science and seeing how much 
motivation and dopamine, the flow of dopamine from the system really is the energizing force for making this work. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I guess motivation is important. And one of the things that we know about motivation is that competence leads to confidence, right? So as opposed to the other way around, right? A lot of people, well, if you tell them they're doing great, you know, they'll, they'll feel good about themselves. Well, actually the better thing is, is that if they see some kind of competence, that confidence that they start to gain is rooted in them seeing the line grow. And so one of the things that, you know, even going back to my time doing interventions, you know, in Massachusetts was that child seeing their their uh, their accuracies lines increase, or their uh, we'd give them word lists of word families: cat, bat, hat, fat, sat. And as they got faster and faster going through those lists, they could see their times drop. That motivational boost was huge, even and even for these kids that might still be at that first percentile for reading, that was the boost to keep them going. And so, even for these kids that are "quote unquote" non-responders, what I there's one thing I would say is look at the gains that they are making. Look for what are what are those gains that they're making. Might you still have children at you know in fifth grade reading at a first and second grade level? Yes, and and that still is heartbreaking. But one of the things that if that child went from being able to do no decoding at all to basically being able to do most of their decoding and right they can now start to you know move from trying to to get faster and faster build that fluency or at least get to you know make sense of the words that's a far better place to be than saying okay well now you have to rely on read twos for the rest of your academic career Sure. And so I I think that's the the key of the non-responders is to really look at where are they making gains because it's it's likely that they're making gains it's just sometimes is not always easy to see. And if they're not responding sometimes you know looking at different approaches that you might take where are their weaknesses and are there different approaches that we can take. I I love what you said about focusing on the individual student and look at their individual gains because especially with our students who are you know, having challenges with reading, that's, we don't necessarily um, do that so often. We mostly compare them to like a grade level standard or, you know, what they're expected to do at this time. But I think it's really important to remember that when our students are struggling, the most important thing we can do is to show growth in their specific journey and Mm -hmm. also show them the growth. Like you said, the confidence leads to confidence. That resonates a whole lot. I love that. I'm going to make a poster. <laughs> one of the one of the things that I tell my uh, student teachers as, uh, as I'm teaching my uh, pre-service teachers is the ch- when you think of every struggle that you're coming for coming in front of, every hurdle that you face or every, you know, every mountain that you're, you know, looking at climbing and it's daunting, you know, what is it that you draw upon and right you're you start to think back of well have i been able to do something like this before right and and i think that sense of uh, of when a child can see that they've made gains and they know they struggled but they made you know you make it abundantly clear look you did it you did it you've done this right look at what you've done already that gives them 
at least the the confidence to approach you know you worked hard you did this that gives them the confidence to approach the next hurdle the next hill mm-hmm. and for those who are uh you know at that struggling end and those who seem not to be responding oftentimes that path and that journey might be slower it's just a lot slower to meet each of those hurdles and each of those hurdles might have to be you know you you can't jump from you know from two feet to four feet you might have to you know move from two feet to two and a half feet you know to then to three feet right and you might have to take that journey slower Mm -hmm. thank you for that reminder that's really really important i have one last question and this is just a question for you why do you do what you love for education or for literacy and I will let you think about that for a moment and then jump in. I think for me, the the love of literacy and studying, you know, what happens, I mean, I think stems from from two things. One is just wanting to, you know, right, make a difference, of wanting to to see children and and also those who are vulnerable right i mean the ones who are most likely to fail are those who are the most vulnerable in the you know in our country um and so one is is making a difference for those who are most vulnerable and understanding that those who don't learn to read are going to continue to be the most vulnerable right the highest incarceration the less you know more likely to have addiction and and other types of problems and just uh, difficulties in life. And so I think that just that that liberating sense of being literate and and being able to read is just is completely liberating. And so for me it started with uh ensuring that that you know all children can read. And I think the the second part is that sense of just really understanding how it all works. I mean the scientist in me really just loves to understand how how I can understand how this works. How is this how is this going together? What's happening in, in the brain and what's happening in the minds and and the psychology of these children. And so to be able to put those two things together, right? To put that scientific knowledge and and curiosity and and, and need to understand and know together with the uh, sense of being able to then help to make children literate and to reach all children and to um, have them maximize their their outcomes. I think that's really what has driven me to to this point. Very noble. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today. I, I know I said we were going to have a short conversation and it turned into a 43-minute conversation, but I'm so grateful that you are here and that you gave us so much of your time and that we could really dive deeper into dyslexia with an expert such as yourself. So thank you. Great. I'm glad I could do it. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. 
Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.